As always, and I don't say this just to say it, it is so significant to me. Thank you for being here in the morning for the study of the Word of God. Thank you. Okay, all right. Thank you. All right. Oh, well, you know, wow. You see, John, what happened when you walked in? You and Isaac and Daniel, man, everybody, amen, praise God. Here they are, the three musketeers. I mean, musketeers. All right. Okay, well, now Coach is here. We can begin. Hey, Coach, you watch that game yesterday, LSU? Hmm, close, huh? This morning we're continuing, and this will be the last Sunday we do this. Next Sunday we'll go back into Matthew, not that we're in, not in Matthew, but Matthew chapter, what chapter are we on? Chapter 26, and we'll start with verse 3 next week. And in anticipation of chapter 3, I'm sorry, verse 3 next week, we're going to go through verse 3 to 13, I think it is. As you read these pericopes, these little sections of story, I want you to do so remembering what the Apostle Paul talks about, the conflict between the spirit and the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. That's just a little thought coming forward. So if you read it within that context, and then the context of what Jesus says in John 14 about the attitude of the world toward itself and the people in the world and the attitude of the world toward him and his disciples. So if you read that section, those verses 3 to 13, within that, those verses uh, that I've just re- recommended, I think it will help out to understand a little better what we're doing. Today we're going to finalize some discussion concerning the title, the Son of Man. And what I'm hoping <clears throat> is that the purpose of God, as I have felt led to do it this way, is being achieved among us. So when we see and hear the title, the Son of Man, as it pertains to Jesus, could you remember, it also pertained to other people in the Bible. But as Jesus uses it for his own self-identity, the most significant title that he gives to himself, because he uses it 30 times at least in the Gospel of Matthew. When we hear that, I'm hoping that it the Holy Spirit brings into our minds a rush of just revelation and understanding that makes this title huge for us, much larger for us than what it was when we first heard it a few weeks ago. So, Father, this morning as we begin, again, always, 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 Father, your anointing is critical. Father, for without the anointing of your spirit, your word in us is not vivified. It's not made alive and active and powerful the way we need it to be. So, Father, place your anointing on me, on everyone in this class. Father, so that the words that come out of the mouth of this poor man and the words that come into the ears of the rest of us, Father, that you will use those words as dynamite 
exploding in us the revelation of your goodness and of your mercy and of your presence with us and tearing down strongholds and fleshly issues in us. So, Father, we need your anointing. We ask for it, and we believe you will give it because you said if we ask, you will. In Jesus' name, thank you. Amen. Well, what we have seen already is that Jesus self-referenced as the Son of Man. Remember, in this title, and you must get this, this is fundamental. It is absolutely critical and necessary for the entire work of God to be revealed and to be successful in our lives. The, the title, the Son of Man, Jesus is saying two equally equally significant things about himself. He is saying that he is fully divine and he is fully human in the one person. Both of those are equally significant. It's not that, oh, well, his divinity is more important than his humanity or his humanity is more important than his divinity. That's wrong. It is as wrong to say that as it is to say God the Father is more important than the Son. Or, no, the Holy Spirit is more important than the Son and the Father. We would never do that because we know that there is equality in the Godhead. And so there is equality of the divine nature and the human nature in this one person called Jesus Christ. There is equality. Two distinct separate natures in unity, functioning according to the distinct role of each in this one man. Now, that's, if you want a theological comment, that's called the hypostatic union. And I think one day I'm just going to have to teach about the union in Christ, our, uni- our union in Christ and something about that. So we, perhaps we'll have some larger understanding. And so you remember that Jesus is saying, I am the divine son. I am the human son, the son of David, remember, through Mary. But also, when he's referring to the messianic figure in Daniel 17, remember verses 13 and 14, that's a messianic figure. That's the one who will present to God the Father on the throne, the ancient of days, remember, the salvation of humanity. And that title in that scripture is Aramaic. It's not Hebrew. The Hebrew is Ben Adam. Remember that? Son of man, son of the earth. But in Daniel, it's Bar Enos, meaning, and it's Aramaic, meaning the son of weakness. And so Jesus is saying, I'm not only the son of God, a divine man, I'm a human man, but I'm not a superhuman man. By using the word bar anos, by referencing it that way, Jesus is identifying himself with our intrinsic weaknesses that are common to all of us. So in the last Adam, you remember in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, remember Adam and then the last Adam. He talks about the first and the last Adams. Jesus came into the world. We must remember this because too many people get the wrong idea about the humanity of Jesus. Jesus came into, uh, sorry, the Son of Man came into the world. I have Jesus came into the world. The Son of Man, oh, Jesus was born. The Son of Man came into the world. The infinite Son of Man came into the world and took on our finiteness. 
The immutable, unchangeable Son of Man came into humanity and took on our mutability, our changeableness. The one who had all knowledge as the Son of God took to himself lack of knowledge and ignorance as the Son of Man. Remember, I don't know when I'm coming back. Only the Father knows. Do you remember that? And so the one who was all-powerful for all eternity as the Son of God comes as the Son of Man and comes as a human totally and completely without any power whatsoever in reference to God's will. No power at all as a human in reference to God's will. No power. Weakness. So he takes on our intrinsic weaknesses. You remember what he said. He says in John five nineteen, I tell you the truth, the, man, son, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. Now, what does that mean, he can't do anything by himself? Well, certainly he can dress himself. He can feed himself. Well, certainly. What does it mean? It means pertaining to the issues of God's will and purpose. As the son of man, the son of God is completely and utterly dependent. Now, when we say that, he comes in the form of human weaknesses. Immediately, that should say something about ourselves. Because what he has done, the Son of God, has clothed himself with the same constituting creaturely, creature, as creatures, creaturely weaknesses that we all have. Now, understand, I said creaturely weaknesses to differentiate it from moral weakness, which we'll get into in a moment. How many of you have to eat? Jesus had to eat. If he didn't eat, he'd starve to death. How many of you have to potty? All of us do. Jesus had to, too. Isn't that something like, oh, no, 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 Jesus? Yes. How many of you have to take a bath? Oh, there's an air about you. Jesus did too. You know? How many of you had to sleep? Jesus did too. So as to our creatureliness, and I emphasize this right now because it is highly significant that we get it. When Jesus says he is the son of man, he is saying this. The Son of God is saying in this man, Jesus Christ, I am a creature, human creature, exactly in the same way as you are. I am physically constituted with the same weaknesses that you have. Okay? We're talking about the physical weaknesses that we occur as creatures. We must get that. That's what he's mean. That's why he uses the word baenos from Daniel, that Aramaic term. This means that Jesus came into the world with the same creaturely weaknesses as Adam had before the fall. Now, wait, wait. I thought Adam was innocent. There's a distinction between innocence as to the committal of sin and weaknesses. Adam was created innocently, without any sin. And then Eve, without any sin, correct? Are you with me? But Adam and Eve were created with creaturely weaknesses. 
Well, I didn't know that, Chris. I thought, well, Adam didn't know everything, did he? Adam wasn't all powerful, was he? Adam had to eat. Well, how do we know that? Don't eat of that tree. You can eat of all of the others. Adam had to sleep. Adam had to do physiologically everything that we have to do. But at this point before the fall, there's no sin involved in Adam's weaknesses. So you begin to see immediately that because we have creaturely weaknesses does not automatically mean that those weaknesses are sin containers. They're not the receptacles or the place where sin dwells automatically. So why was it necessary for the Son of God to become the Son of Man? And I am really going to try to get through this today. But there's so much importance here. Why is this necessary? Well, why is it necessary that Jesus be the Son of Man? How do we know that? Well, we not only know it from the content of what it means, but we know it because he called himself the Son of Man so often. And when he is calling himself the Son of Man, and I'm the Son of Man, and I'm the Son of Man, what does that say? It's important. So it's important that we know the necessity, the significance of it. In this, as I've already said, are the two, the twin absolute necessary truths, the two legs upon which our redemption rests. As to the nature of divinity, he is the son of man. As to humanity, he is both the son of man, a human, and he's both the son of God, divine. Those are the two truths. So let's talk about us. Jesus Christ the Son of God, has to be a true man to savingly represent us. Do we get that? He has to be a true, genuine man in order to save us. He doesn't save us because he's the Son of God. He doesn't save us because he's a human. He saves us because he is the Son of God slash the Son of Man. Both are necessary for our salvation and for the revelatory work of God and for the grace of God in creation. Because had it not been that the Son would become the Son of Man, there would have been no creation. I hear people say, well, what happens if if Jesus wouldn't have gone to the cross? It's foolishness. It would nothing have happened. God would still be Alone. In other words, without any other being. He's not alone in himself, but there's no other being there. This is required from the very beginning. From the very beginning all the way through. It didn't happen because of sin. It happened because God decreed that this is the way it would happen. Hmm. Hebrews 2.14. We're talking about Jesus I mean sorry, the Son being incarnate, taking on the human human nature. Uh, Hebrews 2.14, the first part of it. Since therefore the children. Who are the children? We. We we, we the children of God. Okay. Since the children. We are the children of God. Since, let's say, we share in flesh and blood. All of you are flesh and blood in here? Everybody? Okay. He who? Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God. He himself likewise partook of the same things. He partook of these things. 
The Son of God came into the world as the Son of Man in order to represent all of God's people in his perfect life of obedience. May I read that one more time? Is it in your notes? Well, let me say it again. The Son of God came into the world as the Son of Man. Why? And by the way, when I say he came into the world, these are all secondary issues. We'll talk about something about the primary issue perhaps next week. The Son of God came into the world as the Son of Man. Why? In order to represent all of God's people in, in location, in his perfect life of obedience. Did we get that? Representation in Christ is the reason we're saved. Or our position is the reason we're saved. Or our position is the reason we are unsaved. Let's talk about that. Listen to Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest. Who is that we're talking about? Jesus Christ. Who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. I know you get tired. I know you have to eat. I know you have to sleep. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because, Kit, he was one of us in those weaknesses. Those creaturely weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. (sighs) Now this takes a whole day of teaching in and of itself. I'm going to try to get through it again. I may not get through the notes today. I can feel myself sinking into other issues. I don't ask for forgiveness, but I hope you have an understanding here. Let's stop for a moment and look at that. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And I think I'll get into this further on, but I want to make sure that I make it clear right away. Jesus was tempted by sin. Now make sure you get this. Adam was tempted by sin. I know I'm going to get to it. They're in my notes, but I want to make sure. What does that mean? That means the temptation to sin was an external opportunity, offering, request, drawing, you know, to draw near, to, 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 to uh, a call, a tapping on the outside. And so continually, Jesus was tempted to sin, tempted by, I'm sorry, to sin. Did I say by sin? To sin, to sin, to sin. He was tempted. Take these stones and what? Throw yourself off the temple and what? Do you remember these things? And continually through the ministry, Jesus is tempted from the external to disobey God and to do something for or about himself, for the benefit of his own personal humanity, don't you see? You're hungry. Just like everybody else, Jesus, you're hungry. So what's the problem, Darlene? Take a bite of food. And there's no problem in the food. 
the problem was it was not God's will at that moment for Jesus to be eating the food. It was God's will for Jesus to be doing something else than eating. He, eating would come later. So Jesus just did so. Well, everybody eats, so therefore everybody. Because you see, it's interesting. In every aspect of his life, Jesus had to hear from the Holy Spirit. How many of us, well, you know, I don't, I don't have to pray about that. I don't have to pray about that. I don't have to pray about that. How many of us feel that way? You know, is it necessary really to pray about this? It's so clear, but yes. Yes. And it's not necessarily that the activity or the thing in and of itself is wrong. It may be a timing of God. It may be, you know, for a particular purpose he wants. And so you're not getting that purpose. We have to go to God and live our lives being led by the Spirit on a regular and an intimate basis. So what Jesus is tempted to sin. Adam was tempted to sin. How are we tempted today? We are tempted not only from the outside, but from what? The inside. Now we're not only tempted to sin, Billy, but when the temptation of sin comes knocking on my door, there's a whole lot of stuff inside that room that says, open the door, open the door, let him in, let him in. Come on, let him in. Right, Tim? It's all kind of stuff on the inside of you saying, I'm coming to the door. I'm coming to the door. I'm coming to the door. And so, before Christ, before we were saved, Barry, we had to open the door. Amen? We had to open the door. Oh, well, I know I've resisted certain sins. Yeah, but when you resisted certain knocks, there was another knock that you did not resist by resisting the first knock in your own power. Therefore, nothing anyone does or can do before they're saved is without sin. Everything is sin. Even helping an old lady across the street to the peril of your old life as an unbeliever is sin. Why? Because whatsoever is not of faith is sin. For without faith, it is impossible to please God. And faith is the gift of the activity of the Holy Spirit in me doing the work of God by the Spirit. Am I right? And so you see that young boy who helps the nun across the street. And when she finally gets to the other side, she says, Oh, thank you so much, young man, for helping me across the street. It's all right. Any friend of Zorro is a friend of mine. It's an old joke, but some of you won't get done. You see, we cannot be represented in Christ unless he is the divine human. We cannot be represented in Christ unless he's the divine human. Colossians 1.18, Christ is the head of the body, the church. And so because we were in Christ, 
I want you to make sure we see in locative location because we were in Christ who is the divine son of man. We had to receive the full benefits of his atoning death for us. Why did we receive the benefits? Because we were in Christ. Hebrews 2, 14 to 15, that through death, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus has to be a genuine human being such as we are with the same kinds of constituted or creaturely weaknesses being tempted to sin yet not by sin because he says no to every sin in order to save us and we are saved by his death and in his resurrection because we were in him all the time according to God's creative purpose. Now, you see, typically when we get saved, how many of you were saved at a, you know, you realize whatever you want to call it, on a particular day you can say, this is when I was born again. And most of us can do that, can't we? Yeah. And so you may think, well, that's when I joined Christ. No, no. You were in Christ already. Jesse, you just didn't know about it. You just didn't know about it. Ephesians 1.4. Somebody, what's Ephesians 1.4 say? Before the foundation of the world. Okay, when that calendar, all of a sudden, you got saved. Okay, I, I got that. I understand. I'm, I'm fine with that. Okay, I'm fine with that. I almost called you Philip. Gary, if I call you Philip, I know you're not. If you call me Jonathan, hey, 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 I'm pleased. That's not when you, you were in Christ before that. The reason you were saved in the first place is because God had placed us according to his eternal purposes in his son. And then declared it to you. On March 28th, 1999. Correct? Are you with me? Let's go back to Genesis to understand a few little things. We can't get away from it. You never will get away with it in this class. It ain't happening. It ain't happening. And in order to teach any of the fundamental issues of the Bible, I declare this without any equivocation or apology, without the foundational references and building, you know, in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, we're not going to understand it completely or as clearly as we need to, correct? So let's go back to Genesis. Remember Genesis 1, 26 and 28. In those three verses, God creates Adam with the same creaturely weaknesses that are common to all humanity. Got it? Okay. Now, even though Adam was created with creaturely weaknesses... His ability to bear God's image. Remember, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. His ability to accurately bear God's image was conditioned. There's a condition in it. There's no such thing as unconditional with God. There are conditions. 
It was conditioned upon what? What does Genesis 2, 16 and 17 say? You see all these trees out here? Hey, you can eat from all of them except what? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You must not eat from that tree because in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So what is the condition of Adam living out and revealing the image of God? Obedience. 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 The penalty for such obedience, remember, is what? You shall surely die. So Satan comes to Adam and tempts Adam. And he is tempting Adam to act contrary to his innocent nature. He's coming to Adam and he's saying to Adam, do this. Now he says it, remember he comes to Adam through Eve, but nevertheless, Adam is the one who is given the responsibility of obedience. And through Adam's sin, the race falls, not through his wife. His wife is deceived. Adam purposefully disobeys. Eve is deceived. She's tricked. And so when the enemy comes to Adam and offers him to disobey the word of God, there's nothing in Adam intrinsically as to his nature that says, yes, there's nothing that says on the inside, I want to do it, 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 I want to do it. How many of us know that when certain sins come to us, we almost have to perspire and we have to start fighting in order to say no? Isn't that right? Anybody like, unlike me? Yeah. Is it automatically, I won't do it? No, there's a contest. Because sin indwells me. It has me as to my flesh. So God, sorry, the, Satan comes to this innocent man, no sin. But yet this man who is filled with creaturely weaknesses. And Satan knows that. He knows it. And what does Adam do? He makes a decision against his own nature and against God's will. This means that Adam could have resisted Satan's offer, but he did not. Could Adam have resisted forever? Do we know? Could Jesus, was it impossible for Jesus not to sin? Yes, no. It's one of those questions that really, I don't know, I'm not sure how, you know, I've read, it's called the peccability or the impeccability of the Son of Man, that Jesus in his human nature, it was impossible for him to sin. Oh, yes, it was possible for him to sin. The point is, he did not sin. So I'm not interested in getting taken up with all the philosophical wanderings. He didn't sin. Jim, he didn't sin. The point is, he said no every time temptation came his way. Adam said yes. Is it possible that Adam was constituted in such a way that he would never have sinned? Interesting, isn't it? An interesting question that I don't know if I can answer, so I'm not going to try it. But you think about it. But what is this? It is first, second Thessalonians, Paul says this, 2 7, the mystery of iniquity or the mystery of lawlessness. 
what is this mystery that in Adam, where there resided no intrinsic sin, that this man, having nothing in him that motivated him to rebel, he rebelled. What is it called? A mystery. The mystery of iniquity. I mean, Ezekiel, come on, Davidson, come on, Davidson. What is it? Oh, boy, there goes the mind. 28, how art thou fallen, O son of, I mean, not, not that, 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 where is it in Ezekiel where it talks about the fallenness and um, uh, this creature? 26 or 24, someone help me. Some of you may know that. I just got confused in my mind. And, the, and it says, iniquity was found in you. I don't get it. I don't understand it. But the point is, he said yes. And when he said yes, what happened? Sin entered his soul. And sin, like a systemic illness. What does systemic illness mean? It's everywhere in your body, right? It totally corrupted every area of his soul, of his psyche, of his emotions, of his thought patterns, of his decisions. There wasn't one area in Adam that sin did not, not just touch, corrupt. We call it total or entire depravity. That the entire being of Adam became infected and became corrupted, even his physical being, because how do we know that? He died. And this means that he, as one with God in fellowship, no longer enjoyed that intimacy of face-to-face with God as he did in the garden when the Lord would come down in the cool of the evening and walk and talk with Adam face-to-face before the fall. Anybody find the Ezekiel passage? 28. 15, and it talks about, and many people, by the way, see this as a reference to Satan. Now, be careful, because the Lord said, when I put you in the garden, and you were a cherub, well, that means Satan. No, a cherub is an angel that guards the presence and the work of God. That's what a cherub is. It's a guardian of the things of God. Adam was to be a guardian, work and keep, guard the garden. He was to be a guardian against Satan. This is about Adam. Well, what about all these jewels? And absolutely, Adam was decked out in them. He was an absolute brilliant being, more glorious looking than any of the angels at that point. This was a man that, woof, had we seen him, I believe, we wouldn't have seen just a regular dude. But at any rate, iniquity was found in him. I don't get it. And we'll just have to stop with that one today and go not worry about it. Now, when Adam sinned, his entire innocent nature became what? Corrupted. Now, here's the linchpin where so many in the church stumble today. We believe 
that when God says you're dead in your sins and trespasses in which you formerly walked. Somebody said that somewhere. When God says you were sinners, enemies, helpless, weak. Somebody said those four things about us. When God himself said no one understands, no one searches, no one does good, no one is righteous. We take those to be complete, accurate, comprehensive definitions of our nature. Correct? That means there's nothing inside of us as it pertains to God and godliness and our ability to call upon the name of the Lord or in any way please God. There's nothing in us that can do that. That's what we believe we see in the Word. Why? Because that's what the Word says. But there's probably more believers, at least in this country, who believe something different. Well, we believe that everybody, God has given the grace of faith a little bit to everybody in the world so that when they hear the gospel, they have in themselves the ability to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And so when they call upon Jesus, then Jesus saves them. So they become a sheep because of their faith. When Jesus says, you don't believe, why? Because you're not my sheep. He turns it around on them in John chapter 10. And so is it that all of us have a little bit of faith and with that faith we can call upon the name of the Lord? Well, doesn't the Bible say everybody's been given a measure of faith? Sure, it says that. No, it doesn't say that. Depending upon what you mean and what your reference is. What does the Bible say? Where is that, by the way? Everybody's been given a measure of faith. <sighs> Romans twelve three, And Paul is writing to the believers. And he says, to everyone among you, you who are saved, to every one of you among you has been given what? The measure of faith. And then Romans somewhere, he says this, faith resides in us. No, he says faith, what? Comes by hearing and hearing the word of God or the word of Christ. So faith is not residential automatically. It is a gift of God in Ephesians somewhere. Y'all going to have to start looking up verses if you don't know where these are. This is important. And so we talked about that. Faith is a work. Remember that? Grace requires work. What is the initial grace of God in the Bible? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God worked. What is the other word? Created. What is that? It's a work. It's the work of God. All things were made by him. Remember in Colossians 16? And for him. 116, I think. Yeah. And so, Adam sinned. Complaint became completely infected. Now, why am I, why am I emphasizing this? Because when Adam sinned, 
and became completely infected by sin and became the slave of Satan. This is a good verse to look at. Second Timothy 2.26. I think that's it. Or is it two? I get my works at once in a while. 2.25. I think it's 2.26. We, what? Oh, I have it in here. Being held captive by Satan to do his will. You see, we have no free ability to call upon the name of the Lord until the Lord breaks that slavery by the Holy Spirit, Ezekiel 36, and frees our ability, giving us the love of God in us, changing our old hearts of sin to a new heart of flesh, and then we can receive Christ by faith, correct? Why can we? Because we want to now for the first time. Before then, we weren't interested. Oh, you may have thought you were, but you weren't. What is the problem with Adam's sin? Where were we when Adam sinned? Well, let me ask you this way. How many of you have parents? Anybody without a parent? I didn't say living parents. All of us have a Where were you when your mama was 10 years old? I'm sorry, your daddy was 10 years old. Where were you? Biblically speaking, where, or physically speaking, where were you? Heaven? No. You may have thought you were in heaven. You mean God kicked you out of heaven? No, no, we weren't in heaven. We weren't created yet. Where were we when our daddies were nine years old, ten years old? Where were we? In our daddies. Biologically, where were we? Do you know how this works? I mean, any of you know how this this procreation works? You know how it works? When you have kids, you know how that works? Yeah, oh, well, yeah, I know how that is. Yeah, yeah, I know how that is. Yeah, exactly. Certainly I know. So... When the mama and the daddy come together and a little child is born, something that is in the daddy goes into the mama and creates life. Amen? So where were we before we were born? In our daddy. In our daddies. Correct? Where were we? Where was our daddy before he was born? In his daddy. And go all the way back to... Adam. Everybody was in Adam when Adam sinned. Therefore, the entire human race is condemned because of Adam's sin. Oh, well, that's not fair. That's not fair because had I been Adam, I would not have done it. Oh, do you really, really believe that? Mm -mm. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. As a believer, you have the capability of resisting sin, yet you do not even do it with the Holy Spirit, and you would tell me that you would have done it as an Adam. You need to think this out again, amen? I think I need to think it out again. Here's the issue. Our original position in Adam, and Frank deals with this a lot. Why? Because the Bible does. Our original position in Adam brought us under the condemnation of sin. And the proof is because all death has passed to all, therefore all sin. Remember in Romans 5? I think it's 5.12. All sin. But we were saved by his life, Romans says. And when it says by his life, I think it's 5.10. Help me. I can't. 
I think it's 510. When the, Paul says by his life, or in his life rather, the word by and in, or the word Greek word en, and it means, and it can mean either one. I've checked with our resident expert. What's his name? May. Evan May. It's locative and instrumental. Locative means we were saved in the life of Jesus, in the location of being in Christ, and we were saved by the instrumentality of his life. It's both. We were saved by in Christ. So you could really put it both ways. We were saved by him and in him. And we were saved by him because we were in him. It's both together. So ending today, our condemnation is because of Adam. Our condemnation isn't because of what we do. What we do is because we were in Adam. We're not, un, we're not condemned because of our sin in that way. We're condemned because we have been constituted in Adam as sinners. Therefore, we sin. Okay? Sinning doesn't make us a sinner. We are sinners in Adam because he sinned. That's when we were condemned. That's when we died. So next week we'll get into the saving work of God, placing us into Christ. And I'll just give you one verse. It may be in the notes. Galatians 2.20. Galatians 2.20. Everybody should know it. I have been crucified in Christ. What does that mean? When Jesus was on the cross, where was I in relation to my sinful deeds? Where was I? In Christ. And when he died, paying for my sin, my sin was in him because God had placed us in Christ when he died. Amen? So next week we'll go into a little more of this uh, and hopefully, hopefully next week I'll get it finished.